It's time for a Drummer Nation. New York-based jazz drummer, sideband, band leader, entrepreneur, and educator, Carl Allen has been a mainstay on the jazz scene for nearly three decades. While still in college, Carl joined Freddie Hubbard and served as his musical director for eight years. He also played with jazz luminaries Michael and Randy Brecker, Benny Golson, Wayne Shorter, Herbie Hancock, Joe Henderson, and many others. He taught at the Juilliard School and served for a time as its director of jazz studies. He leads the Carl Allen Quartet, as well as the Art of Elvin, a band dedicated to two of his drum influences, Art Blakey and Elvin Jones. Created specifically for practice sessions, quiet tone practice cymbals by Sabian are designed to respond and feel like traditional cymbals, right down to their clearly defined bell, so the drummers won't have to change the way they play. Quiet tone practice cymbals by Sabian. I absolutely love playing drums, and I couldn't imagine uh, not having that in my life. And I really, uh, if I could fac help facilitate that and have an impact on your life so that you could play drums, that means the world to me. My new site, Stanton Moore Drum Academy, is the perfect online drum learning platform for any level drummer to learn how to play the drums the same way I did. With the advantage of having me road test the material on hundreds of stages, countless clinics, lessons, and master classes, and dozens of studio sessions every year. On the site, you'll find over 13 hours of video, dozens of written lessons, and fresh material gets added all the time. I'm looking forward to seeing a lot of you as subscribers on the site, and I think we're going to have a lot of fun. Carl Allen, welcome to the show, and thank you for doing Drummer Nation. It's my honor. How are you, sir? I'm great. I'm great. and It's a pleasure and my honor to be a part of this, Michael. Thank you. Oh, you're most welcome. I've been a, a fan of yours and of your playing for a long time. We don't know each other, but I feel like I do because I've... I've, I've heard your music so much. Uh, I, I don't like to spend a lot of time on background, but let's do a little bit of it. Where are you from? I'm originally from the jazz capital of the world. Which people would say, oh, no, no, that's Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Oh, that's the joke. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so, yeah, I grew up in Milwaukee and the youngest of five kids and, uh, you know, somewhat of a musical family. I, I was just raised by my mother, so I, I always said that everyone played an instrument except for my sister, who just talked a lot. But uh, So it's a musical so, family. Perfect. Musical yeah. family. Yeah, at least coming up. And now at this point, it's just, I have a, a brother, trumpet player, Eddie Allen. He and I are the only musicians still playing. So. Okay, now I, I read that you uh, were a gospel guy at first, right? Well, I grew up playing in church and, uh -huh. uh, and listening to a lot of R&B and soul. I came to jazz when I was maybe 12 or 13, but um, I, I always listened to gospel. My mother was a gospel singer, so... You know, a lot of Mahalia Jackson in the house and mm -hmm. Five Blind Boys in Alabama, mm -hmm. Aretha Franklin. Can't go wrong that. with that. But I, yeah. I also read that you heard uh, Benny Carter, and that's what turned you into a jazz guy. Well, it, it turned me into a jazz guy in a roundabout way a few years later. Because So what happened was I, I uh, you know, I would get my little allowance and, you know, making other little money selling bottles and whatever kids did at that time. and. Mm -hmm. And I bought a Benny Carter record and I used Ben for 50 cents. And at that time, you know, you could buy a lot of candy with 50 cents. So I didn't like it. Mm. And I was upset that I spent a whole 50 cents. And so I told my brother, Eddie, I said, man, I bought this record. And I don't like this record, man. And um, he didn't know how much I paid for it. So he, he checked it out. He said, well, 
I'll buy it from you. I said, well, how much? He said, I'll give you a dollar. I'm like, okay. <laughs> All day long. Yeah. All day long, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but you're a drummer. You were always a drummer. Um, what, was, what was it about Benny Carter that you grew to love? You eventually dug it, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, I've always been attracted to melody. And then, of course, as I got older and got into him, and then, of course, all of his wonderful compositions, you know. Mm -hmm. But uh, I've always been attracted to melody, and, and attracted to melody not knowing that I, that's what attracted me, to, you know, to, to that aspect of music. Well, we're going to get to that pretty soon, because I want to talk about melodic drumming. Um, oh, yeah. You know, let's, let's, let's jump into that. I mean, how does, what does it mean for a drummer to play melodically, and how do you approach that? Well, I approach it with a, an awareness of, of song form and just awareness of, of ideas that have emotion, forward motion. You know, I always say that we often talk about how the drummer has to play rhythm. Well, there's rhythm in everything we do, from the way that we breathe to the way we walk. Uh, so rhythm alone has never really just captured my attention, you know. Um, so, you know, of course, being... A drummer when I was growing up playing a lot of R&B and soul I was always attracted to what the horn players were doing and uh, before I had a teacher I didn't know that I was just supposed to play the groove and so sometimes you know my brother would begrudgingly let me sit in with his funk man I would play horn parts on the cymbals and you know I was 10 or 11 and not knowing that I was not supposed to do that and uh, and of course so to fast forward, as I started going to jam sessions and stuff around 14, 15, started hearing really great saxophonists in Milwaukee, guitarists and others. Like, wow, oh, there's another kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And then fast forward when I joined Freddie Hubbard, I remember telling Freddie, I said, Freddie, man, I don't think I'm hearing drums the way I'm supposed to. He said, what do you mean? I said, well, man, I, I hear what Philly Joe and Max and Art and everybody's doing, but I want to do what you do, but on the drums. And he just fell out laughing. And so I said, man, I'm in trouble. He said, no. He says, I'm laughing because it reminds me of me. And then that I didn't get my ideas from trumpet players. He said, I got most of my ideas from saxophone players. And that was a very liberating moment because it gave me permission to explore. Mm -hmm. And that, that really kind of changed my whole trajectory around when it comes to the instrument. Drummers are always looking for that next sound that drives new music. That next sound that defines their voice as a musician. That next sound that pushes beyond the status quo. Sabian was founded on the idea that drummers deserve infinite sound possibilities. For more than half a century, we've been handcrafting symbols in our factory, always in search of that next sound. But we don't rest on history alone. What has made Sabian the choice of many top artists is our commitment to collaborate, to invent, to dream up big ideas and turn what could be into what is. And now Sabian is pushing the boundaries again. Our latest innovation has opened the door for all drummers to have the same access as top musicians in the world. Custom cymbals. Now available to everyone. Your next sound just got more interesting. Sabian Custom Shop. Well, one of the things that becomes apparent as a drummer, if you're interested in listening to saxophones and trumpet players and the like, is that they have to breathe. Yeah. You know, we can play notes ad infinitum and, and, and fill it all up. And that's generally not what playing melodically is all about. Well, and I, I'm glad you mentioned that because I think breathing is a very important element to be able to play melodically. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. you know. Um, I was fortunate early on coming to New York, having played with Freddie Hubbard, and specifically Freddie, Jackie McLean, and George Coleman. And I, and I cited them specifically because they were very much into drums. And so whenever we would play, it was always like a boxing match, you know. And there are others who the drummer took a different role where you kind of played behind the soloist. Well, with those guys in particular, it was a battle the whole night. Well, when you say a battle, you mean more like you're highly interactive as they are, right? You're all oh, interactive, not, not so much a fight where you're going to win or lose. No, no, it was all conversation. Conversation. Absolutely. As opposed to an older style of just complimenting or putting a cushion underneath that everything sits on, but it's relatively static. Yeah, yeah. And, and what I learned from that experience is that it's not so much about the age of the people that you play with, it's about conceptually where they're coming from. You know, I remember a funny story. I did a record day and I produced a record for a great tennis saxophonist by the name of Frank West. Oh, sure. And I, and I played on the record as well. And this was our first time really playing together, you know. And, uh, you know, Frank had this high-pitched voice and spent time with Count Basie, a lot of big bands, you know. So right before the session, he says, uh, Count Basie, uh, you can do anything you want to with them drums. They can sound like they're falling down the stairs. But the right symbol I got to hear, chain, chain, chain. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that brings me to my next point. The ride symbol is, is kind of the, the thing that holds it all together. What's your ride symbol concept for jazz playing? Well, it's interesting because um, I always say that once you get to a certain level of proficiency on the instrument, I think we all have what I call a fab five. And those are people that we conceptually identify with. My fab five are Blakey, Elvin Jones, Tony Williams, Roy Haynes, Billy Higgins. And I think my... I think my ride symbol kind of goes between those guys, depending on the situation. Mm -hmm. And uh, but most importantly, uh, my approach with the ride symbol is to swing, to be able to swing the whole band from just a ride symbol. You know, you can walk into a room sometimes, and if the drummer has that concept, it hits you from the back of the room that the room is on fire and the place is dancing because of that ride symbol. Michael, I'm tell you something. I remember doing a gig in New York some years ago at this little club called Bradley's. And it was a Monday night. And I remember specifically it was a Monday because Bradley's would go Monday through Saturday. All of the other major clubs went Tuesday through Sunday. And Billy Higgins came in the club. And he was his night off between two weeks at Sweet Basil's with Ron Carter and Cedar Walton. And I'm playing, and Cedar used to, I mean, uh, Higgins used to always call me Baby Boy. So I'm playing, and I hear something behind me. Yeah, yeah. I hear you, baby boy. I hear you. And I look up, and there's a stick on my ride symbol. So, of course, I slide out the way. He sits down. Within eight bars, the music had gone to such a level, I was sitting there crying, literally crying. People were coming over to me, man, are you cool? I said, man, just listen to Higgins, man. Listen to Higgins. I mean, I was just, it was just crying from joy because Higgins had so much love in his playing, you know? I understand. I think that's a unique thing among drummers. Well, not just drummers, but we love to hear another drummer sound great. Yeah. And and it hits us in the soul. Whereas maybe trumpet players would be a little more combative about it. It's just, yeah. just a theory I have. <laughs> well, look, look here. I think trumpet and saxophone probably the most competitive instrument. Uh -huh, and uh -huh. drums, and I've always said drums have such a community, a spirit of community and camaraderie. You know, like all of the guys that you've had on your show, and I, I've, I've checked out a lot of them. Thank you. You know, 
all of these guys, man, it's just nothing but love amongst each other. You know, different generations, even if you've never met, when you see each other, it's just like, it's just love. Yeah, we're all brothers in this. Now, you I know you've been to PASIC many times. That's, oh, yeah. That's a four-day yeah. love-in, man. Absolutely. I can't imagine other instruments doing that. I guess maybe some of no. them do, but not like that. It won't be as hip. <laughs> right. And do you think that's because as a drummer, you know, you can send 10 drummers on the same gig and they're all going to sound great. The leader's going to like somebody better than somebody else. And we all know that. And, yeah. and I think we all have that simpatico with one another. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think we all empathize with how we get to the instrument. I'm not mm -hmm. talking about physically, but metaphorically how we get inside of what makes it work and we start to figure out okay higgins ride symbol had this kind of shape and but mel lewis had another kind of shape and it and it resonates differently with everybody on a very personal level hey everybody out there in cyber world this is adam nussbaum hi dave desenzo here hi bermuda schwartz here hey everyone stanton moore here hey guys johnson pesta here hey everybody this is john jr robinson Hi, Todd Zuckerman here for the Drum Center of Portsmouth. They're knowledgeable, they'll be able to help you and guide you and make the right choices for you and the music that you play. From wingnut to Wuhan, these chaps know what they're talking about. Highly recommended. But what do I know? I'm a drummer. Um, do you feel like you have your own ride symbol shape that you bring to everything or it's informed by your mentors and it adjusts as the music you play warrants? You know, I don't think about that. Um, it's interesting. Other people tell me that I do. Like people will tell me, man, I heard you on the radio and within a measure I knew it was you. And I'm like, man, that's a great compliment. Thank you. And I, I never really thought about it that way simply because those guys that I mentioned and so many others created such a high standard, such a high level. And I'm just humbly trying to get to that. I understand, I understand. You're also totally involved in education, right? You've been yeah. at William Patterson's, are you still there? Oh, no, 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 no. no. I went to school there. Okay, I'm sorry. Uh, but where, yeah, do you yeah. where do you teach? I'm just I'm freelancing right now. I'm not in any particular university. There is a school in um, Ephraim, Utah, Snow College, a small little school where I'm an artistic consultant for jazz studies. And I go out there a few, year, a few mm -hmm. times a, a year to do some workshops and, you know, a concert or two. Um, I know you're a dedicated educator, though. I've seen you at, uh, like, IAJE or JEN or whatever it is now. Or uh, Yeah. Um, it, let's talk about the state of jazz education, because we're seeing a lot of great players come up through those programs, don't you think? I believe so, yeah. And, and, and I'm, You're one of I'm, them. Well, well, thank you. But, you know, I, I've often said that uh, there's nothing that will ever replace the bandstand. But we're at a time in this business where we need to create more opportunities for young people. And so it's almost like the bandstand is, is not a substitute, or it's not like the classroom is a substitute for the bandstand, but I think more and more we're trying to help prepare the next generation for the bandstand. Mm -hmm. I just finished uh, a fall clinic tour, over 35 clinics from all over the States and Australia. And it was really, um, and I did it simply because, you know, in August, I just had this, this really strong pull in my spirit to just give back. And so I, I made a couple of calls, sent a couple of emails, thinking I would do maybe five, ten clinics, and it just kind of snowballed. And I just said, well, maybe this is what I'm going to do this fall. So, I, you know, I was 
you know, all over the place. And um, but it was really gratifying to to be able to touch these students, you know, musically and, and try to get something to help them figure out where they're trying to go. You know, a friend of mine tells me, Carl, you know, you're at that point where you have to kind of take on that role that Art and Elvin had for you. And and that's a hard pill to swallow because I don't feel like I'm worthy of that responsibility. However, I understand because those guys aren't here. And my generation, I'm 57, so it's like my generation is kind of the last generation, maybe a few guys under me, uh, who played with the Freddie Hubbards and uh, Horace Silvers and Joe Henderson and Bobby Hutchison and those so it's important to give back. It's important to help this generation. Well, I'm 62, and I've never had a career with th that level of player, but I did hear all the great jazz musicians alive in my lifetime. And uh, that's being it's getting harder and harder to do these days for kids. It is, yeah. And you, you realize, for some of these kids, uh, when you talk about Dexter Gordon or, Charles, or, or Freddie Hubbard or Woody Shaw, that's like people talking to Charlie about Charlie Parker to us, right. you know, it's like, it's hard to imagine that, but that's, that's kind of what it is. And so we want to pres preserve that part of the history and the way that we have to do that in part is to just try and go in and teach these young people about this music. Well, good on you for doing that. And I'm sure it's rewarding as well to you, right? Yeah, it's very gratifying. When seated at the drums, pressure on the tailbone, lower back and hip joints can lead to pain. Only Carmichael drum thrones are scientifically designed to relieve and prevent discomforts associated with prolonged sitting. Carmichael thrones, we got your back. Now the million dollar question I ask all the educators is, since we're creating all these young players who are very good and aware of the history and all that stuff, uh, there is also decidedly less work in this industry than there was 20 years ago or more. Where are all these guys going to work? I mean, That is the million dollar question. but. I have a theory. That's I it. think that that theory is that we have to create a thirst for people to want to hear this music. And once the, the thirst is there, the desire is there, we have to create opportunities. I think there's been a paradigm shift. I mean, when I was coming up, it was always about playing with the older people to build your resume. Well, you know, a lot of those people aren't around anymore. So we still have to find a way to build a resume because we, we don't ever want to be in a situation where one's experience is irrelevant. So I tell students, I say, you know, if you find you're in a situation where you want to play and there's no place to play, create something. Go to the local museum, go to the library, go to, you know, a department store or something and say, look, you know, I got a trio, I got a duo, a duo I got a whatever, can we play? And, um, you know, as I was told, you may hear a whole lot of no's before you hear that one yes. But sometimes you have to keep on till you get that yes, and then you just have to build from there. Mm -hmm. Whereas in our day, it was kind of wait for the phone to ring and yeah. go to the gig. Uh, yeah, right. That's right. that's a little different nowadays. Uh, you're, tell me about your Art and Elvin project. That was in 2004. I did some reading on you. Uh, uh, the, art, yeah. uh, the Art of Elvin, I should say. Yeah. Because yeah. your it's heroes were Art and Elvin. Tell me more about that. Yeah, it's an interesting title, but those two guys are two of my personal musical heroes and mentors. So I wanted to have a project that was kind of a tribute to them. You know, one of the things that I realized a number of years ago is that a lot of musicians of my generation either played with art or played with someone who played with art. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's just how wide his reach was. Mm -hmm. And um, and I've always, I always said, 
if I'm on a gig and I can't play a shuffle or a press roll, I'm probably on the wrong gig. <laughs> <laughs> so that comes from art. You Didn't know? get that lesson in if you can't do that. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's Blakey up and down. Absolutely. Absolutely. But, the, but it's called the Art of Elfman. It's a tribute to those two guys. But I've been doing a lot more of that. In fact, I had put it aside for a while. And then I got a call from PASIC. Uh, what was it, in 2014, said, look, we're honoring Art Blakey. Um, we know that you have this project, you know, can you do a clinic and a concert? Can you bring a band? So I was like, well, okay. And so, yeah. I, you know, then people started inquiring about it. We've been doing a little bit more, you know, um, in the past couple of years. So there's some other things coming up with that. And then, of course, next year will be Art Blakey's centennial year. So he will have been 100 next year. So I'm kind of gearing up for more. That's things. amazing. I remember the Ellington Centennial. So uh, to somebody who's not heard of these guys, tell me if what are a few descriptive words about Art Blakey's playing? Well, you know, Art Blakey used to always say music is supposed to wash away the dust of everyday life. Mm -hmm. And I'll never forget Art would always say that, that when you play, when a person hears you play and leaves your performance, their lives have to have been changed. And it has, if it has not been changed, you've not done your job. And so that's something that was always kind of etched in my spirit, you know, from being around Art so much. And then Alvin, I'll tell you a funny story. Shortly after Art died, uh, I was on a tour in Japan for this drummer in Japan. His name was George Kawaguchi. Mm -hmm. And they called him the Japanese Art Blakey, right? And uh, on this tour, we did four concerts. And there was two of every instrument. And so uh, the drummer was Alvin. And, uh, and this is right after our diet. And I remember we played with a big band and we're playing moaning. And that was the funniest thing you could ever imagine how Alvin would play a shuffle and just lay way back behind the beat. And you got 18 guys in the big band trying to figure out where to come in. It was hilarious. But Alvin absolutely loved art. I would imagine. Um, this is quite a different style, though. How would you describe Elvin's style? Well, it's, it's interesting. You know, everyone talks about Elvin's playing having that rolling three, right? The rolling triplet feel. Right. But but uh, Elvin was also very melodic. You know, one of the things that I learned from Elvin is something that I've adopted that I call the perforated bar line. So, for instance, I often say that a lot of times our ideas stop and start with the bar line. Mm -hmm. And Elvin, instead of, if he took a four-bar solo, uh, he, you didn't hear four, four one-bar phrases. You heard maybe 16 beats, maybe 17 and a half beats, maybe right. 15 beats, right? right? Mm -hmm. but, but just the way that he would stretch and elongate and create these shapes with, he, with his phrases was something that I've learned that I've tried to adopt within my playing. That's that great that you, that, you, that you put it that way. I, one of the last times I saw Elvin, uh, I think it was um, Pat LaBarber was playing tenor with him. Is it Pat that's yeah. a tenor player? Yeah. And yeah. I, went, I went to him in the break. And I said, man, I'm a devoted you know, jazz guy. I'm a drummer, and I've been listening to Elvin, and I'm not quite sure where the fours are. But you guys always come in at the right spot. And he says, man, you have to listen to the musical phrasing of the man. He's playing a musical mm. phrase. And it naturally leads to its conclusion and everybody comes in at the right spot because they're listening to Elvin. Yeah. Well, see, but when you listen to Elvin, you hear him breathing in the music. Right. You know, you hear, you hear the breath in his phrases. You know, someone told me a funny story. They did a record date with Elvin. They were trading fours. 
So things got a little lost during the trade. And so after 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 they finished the take, they go to Elvin. They say, Elvin, you know, you know, I'm I think during the fours, maybe you played a four three. And they were afraid to even say this to Elvin, not knowing how he would respond. And Elvin just looks up and says, Yeah, well, maybe I owe you one. <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect. Maybe I owe you one. He was such a warm guy. I got to meet him a few times. And, uh, he was unbelievable. I man. mean, the last time I met him, I didn't know what to say. I, it was, he was a signing, and I was standing in line. I said, What are you going to say, man? You play good? You know, I said, Elvin, I love you, man. And he just put his hand in my, ah, I love you too, brother. And, you know, he was, he was just the sweetest guy in the world every time I met him. And he had that yeah. larger-than-life kind of sweet personality that was evident in his play. Elvin, Art, and Billy Higgins shaped my life probably more than any other drummers on a very personal level. And, like, when Art died, I, I cried every day for three months. I mean, like, it didn't matter what was going on. I could be happy, and all of a sudden I would just start crying because I... I remember, I, I remember telling several people. I said the music will never be the same, and and I still feel that that the music changed when when Art passed away. Hmm. And um, the irony, like with Elvin, Elvin was such a sweet and warm and gracious guy. We we used to have some great conversations, but I'll never forget the last when I went to Elvin's funeral. I mean, that was the last time I saw Max. You know, and Max was in a wheelchair, you know, but, but Elvin and I used to have some really great conversations about music. And <laughs> so another time I was playing Bradley's, uh, Elvin had come down and Elvin used to just always call me Alan, right? So he wanted to sit in. And so there was no stage there, but the drums were pushed up against the piano. So I had a student that was there and I just told him, I said, man, you just lay up under the piano. He's like, what? I said, just lay up under the piano. Just get on the floor and lay under the piano. Because every time Elvin would hit the bass drum, the, the, the drums would move. And Elvin would be playing, and he would look at me and say, Alan, I like these drums, but they won't stay still. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but Elvin was a sweetheart. Man. Well, and then with Higgins, I'll tell you, just really quick with Higgins. Sure, take your time. After Higgins had that operation and he had come back, his first gig was at the Vanguard here in New York. And when he, I sat in the back of the club listening, and when he came off the stand, I mean, I had tears in my eyes because we had talked several times, you know, prior to the operation and all of that. And he saw me and he just come towards me, you know, arms out to embrace me. And he said, baby boy, how you feeling? I said, Higgins, man, I, said, I don't know how to tell you this, man, but. Because Art had already passed, right? I said, I don't know how to tell you this, man, but man, it sounded like I was hearing Art come through you. And he just pushed back and he looked at me. He said, did you hear that too? He said, my Art was talking to me all night. I was like, whoa. But just, I speak of that, not to talk about anything somber, but just about the kinship that all of those guys and how all of these guys were connected to each other that really kind of filled us all up, you know? And there was none of that competitiveness. It was right. none of that, you know. I, I have a similar story. I was listening uh, in the 80s. I was in L.A. and Jeff Hamilton was playing. And mm. I don't remember the circumstances, but I said, man, I sure hear a lot of Shelley. And that was the day Shelley died. Mm. I didn't know Shelley had died that, that day. It was just what wow. you could hear it in his playing. I mean, he was 
I, I certainly believe in what you're saying, man, because because it's see, such a deep, deep, soulful impact these guys have on us. Let me tell you, Michael, those things in my mind are not coincidental. Mm-hmm. They're not coincidental. There's a song that I wrote, and I said I wanted to write a song for Elvin, and I was calling it Presenting Mr. Jones. And, and I was in my music room writing, and I never have a phone in my room when I'm, when I'm writing or when I'm practicing. For some reason, I had the phone in, my, in the room. And as I'm writing the song, I get the call, hey, man, just got the call that Elvin just passed. Oh. Whoa. You know, but my point is, it's not coincidental that I was writing this song in tribute to Elvin, right. you know, while I get this call. But, you know, but see, but Jeff is one of those guys, too, that you hear all of his influences coming through him, and he is such... A bad cat, man. All, all the I greats, mean, all the greats have that. I think you have to. You hear the history, and then you hear them playing, and it comes out as a whole thing. You yeah, know, that includes them and everything that came before them that influenced them. Yeah. It's wonderful to hear. It's a complete artist when you hear that. You know. And see, the thing that Jeff and I talk about all the time. I mean, Jeff and I are really friends. And, you know, he and I are both kind of watch fanatics, right? Oh yeah. But anyway, uh, I'll see him next month. But anyway. Uh, we talk about Mel Lewis. He and I both have a, a great deal of love and respect for Mel. Same here. Yeah, yeah. And it's 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 almost unfortunate that I think a younger generation of guys don't really know about Mel at the at the level of depth that I think that they should. Mm-hmm. You know, the funny thing is Mel and Elvin were very very much influenced by each other. You know. And I don't know if that had something to do with Mel being influenced by him because of because of that or what. But you know, well, there is I that mean, natural connection. Mel's partner, uh, musical partner for so many years, was Elvin's brother, uh, yeah, Thad Jones. Yeah. To the uninitiated, we're talking Thad Jones, Elvin Jones. Hank Jones was a third brother, a great piano player. Yeah, yeah. Just throw a little history in there. Uh, tell me about the uh, you're involved in in. I mean, you're you're a musician, you're a, a composer, you're an entrepreneur, you're a producer, you're an educator. Well, you've been involved in producing a lot of things too, right? Yeah, and and I'll I'll tell you why that all happened because back in the eight, well, it, it really started happening in '87 because I was in Japan, uh, first trip to Japan, and I'm in Tokyo, and a guy comes to me after the concert, introduces himself. My name is Mokolo Kimada. I'm A&R at Alpha Records. I said, oh, nice to meet you. He says, Art Blakey said, I'm supposed to give you a record deal. <laughs> and Michael, you know that show Punk? It wasn't, it hadn't been created at that point. At the, I thought I was being punk. Yeah. Looking around. You're like, yeah, sure, we, yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so we talked for a while. And I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, you know, I've, I've recorded art before, and he feels like you you will carry on that tradition of the messengers of helping the young guys and blah blah blah, you know. And I was really touched by that, and so we talked. And he says, um, "Well, do you have a fax machine?" I was like, "No, but I'll get one." <laughs> and so we talked a little bit, and then it was like, "Well, look, I want you to do a, a project. You, you know, you're producing." Blah blah. I was like, "Okay." I had no idea what that entailed, but that kind of started, you know me getting into producing and then it was and that first record actually had Roy Hargrove on it which was his first or second record as a sideman yeah he was just coming up but the question I have is what what does a producer do well I think every situation is different Um, in jazz 
I think part of what the role is that I've taken as a producer is to try to help bring to fruition and to life um, the, the vision of the musicians, uh, but specifically the band leader. Mm-hmm. Uh, and sometimes that, that entails helping with the music. Sometimes that's helping find the right personnel to help bring the vision to, to, uh, to fruition. Um, you know, there's a lot of pre-production stuff, of course. And then trying to, in the studio, trying to create an environment that's conducive from just trying to create something as natural and organic as possible. I look at the producer as the one who puts the team together, the one who makes it all work. You finds out what everybody needs, get the personnel, the location, the logistics, the pre, pre-record, post-record, the whole thing, the person who makes it work. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I've produced over 70 records, and, and some of those records, you had to hold their hand from start to finish. Mm-hmm. Then there were other sessions. I did a project called the West Coast Summit that had um, Ralph Moore, Eric Reed, Bob Hurst, and Jeff Hamilton. Man, I, I didn't have to do anything but order lunch and sit back and drink a Pellegrino. You know, <laughs> just, those guys took care of everything, you know, but, musically. I mean, but you knew that. So the producer's job is to know when you need to be there and what you need to do. And it's not something you can just define in, in specific terms. Absolutely. And, right. absolutely. And, and for me, you know, um, you know, when we think about producers, we, you know, our minds sometimes go to pop producers or rock producers. Right. That's a completely different thing. So I didn't really have a role model. Uh, I mean, I had been on sessions, you know, with, with Orrin Keep News and, Tommy LaPuma and some other really great guys, Michael Cascuna. But then I had also been a part of a number of other sessions that I did not like. And so then the question for me was, what was it that I did not like? And how can I try to create an environment that's not that? Right. You know, and um, and that, that, you know, entailed a lot of different things. Well, obviously you have. Now, didn't you have some uh, pop credentials too, right? Did I read that? James Taylor, Sting, Clapton? No, no. Those are people on my list that I want to play with. Okay, all right, all right, all right. Because I, I, I didn't think I'd seen you in those. So, well, let's talk about that. You, you Rather than cut this, because I had it wrong, uh, why as a jazz musician do you want to play with Sting and Clapton and Bonnie Raitt and James Taylor? Because it goes back to melody. Mm. It all goes back to melody. I love their songs. I love the story. I love, you know, I will listen to Bonnie Raitt. I can't help you now. I mean, it's just... Mm-hmm. You know, I just love rules, you know, and um, and it goes back to to wanting to be a part of something that's dancing. And every time I listen to those guys, that's what I hear. I just hear it dancing, you know, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, I, I, I have to find a way to make those connections. But that's definitely something that I would like to do. Well, I'm glad I got that wrong and asked you that question. Or I wouldn't have gotten that answer. <laughs> yeah, but, but, see, but I'll tell you, you know, when I think about some of my non-jazz favorite drummers, you know, I think about Harvey Mason, I think about Steve Gadd, I think about Steve Ferroni. There's a guy, he and I, we've been texting back and forth and still haven't spoken or haven't met before. And I, you may have had him on your show, Calvin Rogers. No, I haven't. Oh, you got to get him yeah, on your show. Yeah, I'd love, love to. He's, He's unbelievable, but uh, you know we have this mutual respect for each other's playing, and we have a lot of friends in common and a lot of industry people in common. But uh, you know, but but I just love the way he plays the instrument. You know, like I said, I have the Art of Elvin. I have another project, this Art Blakey Centennial project that's separate from the Art of Elvin. And then I've been writing some other stuff that's kind of gospel R&B tinged 
Um, so I'm working on some music for a project like that. But I have other other gigs coming up with Benny Golson, who I've been playing with for about 30 years. Some other things later in the year with Christian McBride. He and I go way, way back. Mm, I know you do. Some more things with my good friend Vincent Herring. We have some things coming up in the spring and in the summer. Um, and just a lot of other different projects. And then some more educational things. You know, I'm, I'm at a point, Michael, in my career where, selfishly speaking, I kind of want to just do what I want to do. I think it's you fair know? to say you've heard that. Oh, man, I appreciate that. But it, it's... Uh, I, 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 music has become so personal for me where if I don't feel like I can really be honest behind the instrument, then I, I, I need to not be there, you know? And so, because um, I, I just feel the music deserves it. I feel the music is transparent enough where if you're not really honest, it's going to come through. And um, so I'm, I'm really kind of looking to, you know, a lot of jazz musicians, we don't think about jazz being a youth-orientated business, but it is. And so we have to think about how you have to, for lack of better word, find ways of rebranding yourself. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if I look at my resume, man, the number of people that I've played with who are no longer with us is a little disheartening. This is staggering, you know. And so during this time, where I have a little bit of time off, I said I'm going to use some time to go and hear some younger players. And, you know, that's the thing that I've always enjoyed is kind of hearing what younger guys are doing, not just drummers, but everybody, mm -hmm. and uh, mm -hmm. try to find my, myself in some of those situations. Because I, I love trying to create for different, not only different genres, but gener different generations of musicians. And then also, I'm, I'm at a point now where I'm kind of open to possibly a new teaching position, because I still love that. You know, I did it for a number of years at Juilliard. It served its purpose at the time, and um, you know I'm kind of looking to maybe get back into that. Well, that's great, man. I, that I think that covers where you are today and and who you are today, and I sure do admire and respect and appreciate you, Carl. Oh, thank you. Likewise, Michael. You're, I appreciate you. You're an inspiration to so many young players and and some of us old guys too. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate it. Thank you. Okay, man. Okay, Michael, I appreciate you, man. Thank you for all, all that you do. Thank you. This is your host, Michael Vosbein, and I'd like to thank our friends at Sabian Symbols, Sound Synergies, and more Drum Academy and Drum Center of Portsmouth. Thanks for watching. We'll see you next time.